0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Radio Imbibe from Imbibe Magazine. I'm Paul Clark, Imbibe's Editor-in-Chief. And almost two years ago, as we were wrapping up the difficult year of 2020, we were busy in putting together our annual Imbibe 75 list of the people and places influencing the drinks world. At that time, in the midst of pandemic shutdowns and economic fallout and a widespread cultural reckoning, we realized that the time just wasn't right to simply focus on cool new bars and coffee shops, that we needed to be a part of some of the conversations going on at the time and share some of the voices and perspectives that needed to be heard in the hospitality world. One of the people we featured in that 2021 M575 was Chalky Tom. A bartender then living in New York City and in the process of moving to London, Chalky had been one of the organizers and hosts of what at the time was called Doom Tiki, a series of pop-up events that addressed issues related to indigenous communities and colonization through a style of drinks and presentation drawn from the world of tiki and inspired by the aesthetics of doom metal. Chalky Tom is now living in London, and Doom Immersive, as it's now called, is continuing to share that message with audiences in Europe. For this episode, in honor of Native American Heritage Month here in the United States, we're catching up with Chalky to hear about her latest work and her plans for the future, and to talk about things we should consider as we head into the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Chalky, welcome to Radio Unbibe.
1: Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me
0: on. And, you know, I wanted to catch up with you because last year in 2021, we had you as part of our Imbibe 75 coverage, uh, due in part to the work that you had been doing with your Doom Tiki pop-up series before that. Right around the time when we talked back then, you were in the process of moving to London, where you've continued your work to share the stories and insight uh, into Indigenous roles and hospitality. Tell us what you've been doing on this front in Europe this past year or so, and, and how is it being received?
1: Well, um, the first thing that we did is we started 2022 with a name change. We decided to take the Tiki part out, but that was um, how our pop-up concept was built. We knew that using the word Tiki would get people there, but changing it would be the best way to lead by example. So we changed it to immersive because it's a doom metal immersive and subversive experience. And um, I relaunched it last year when Trailer Happiness, the... Um, rum bar in west london that i was doing social media for my husband's worked for off and on and my friend sly augustine owns uh, flooded so i brought back um my pop-ups during that time and since then i've had three here and then i've taken it on the road i did uh, one in new york for my birthday in 2022 and i took over the green zone in washington dc which is um one of my favorite bars in the whole world i totally recommend it Part of the reason we wanted to do that is because it's a Middle Eastern cocktail concept. And um, that's another culture that's not really associated with drinking our cocktails, but has like food and drink contributions internationally. So it made sense for us to team up together and that went really well. And since then, I've just been um, doing as much advocacy work as I can. I put together the first Indigenous-led panel in Tales History. I've gotten some recognition from a couple other publications, so... For me, the most important thing has been um, building community and doing what I can in Europe. I was part of a um, movement to get the um, mascot change for the extra chiefs. Instead of using one of ours, they're using one of theirs. So, I mean, it's I've been getting as much momentum, but I also believe that if I want to do visible work for my community, doing it in like the European stage will get the attention that I want for my work back in the States because... Um, I kind of felt when I was living there was I was turning my wheels a lot and that seems to be kind of the case.
0: And, you know, part of what you were doing with with Doom Tiki and then Doom Immersive, and have been doing since then, uh, inevitably deals with challenging some of these preconceived notions and long-held biases and mythologies relating to indigenous people and alcohol. What are some of the things you find yourself still encountering now in 2022, and how, how do you address those when you run into those?
1: I mean, I used to just kind of, like, the first time I came across it, it was with um, this Belgian-made gin that I don't think exists anymore, and it was um, Apache gin. And at the time I was working for Thomas Henry, who I still do work for. They're a great company. But um, working for a European tonic water brand, I didn't feel that at that point in my career I could speak up and say anything. So at this point, like, um, I feel like I've done enough work and I've gotten enough recognition and I have enough community and people working on being good allies to kind of back me up on these things. So when I come across tequila brands that use, like, Spirit Animal or... That tired tribes marketing um, tropes, I'm more than happy to like speak up and do things. I'm currently taking on um, a beer here that uses um, ghost dance for what they're called in ghost dance, um, being over Paiute from where I'm from in Nevada, like the ghost dance is ours and that's completely inappropriate. So that's like the next thing I'm taking on. You know, people are always going to think that what I'm doing is too sensitive or too woke or annoying, but the more I do it, the uh, younger people in the industry from different communities, they reach out to me and tell me that, like, it inspires them to speak up and that people didn't know that you could do that and be in this industry that you couldn't advocate for yourself. You know, there's always going to be some pushback, but the more of us that are talking together from different communities dealing with a lot of the same issues, the latter will be and the more people will have to listen. And some brands have reached out, pop-ups, bars. So like, you know, I'm beginning to see in real time change starting to happen. And, you know, I've continued my work with Tiki by the Sea and they've uh, changed kind of what they're doing. They've brought in more people like me, Sam Miller, Mo from Campari that works with all the rums, you know, she's leading classes on decolonization of rum. Sam Miller's confronting like the actual history of Tiki and I'm doing like cultural empowerment and like different ways to like look within what you have without taking. So You know, if we're able to connect with these like bartenders from all over, you know, there's going to be more change. And it's good to see that organizations like that are stepping forward.
0: And, you know, when I saw you last, it was this past summer at Tales of the Cocktail, uh, you were moderating a session on indigenous representation and visibility in hospitality. One of the things that struck me from that session and from some of the reading I've done and conversations I've had afterwards was that part of this conversation is about correcting misperceptions like we've just been talking about. But it's also about celebrating the role indigenous people in hospitality have uh, and the role of beverages in indigenous cultures. What are some of those you know, stories that you like to share that are kind of like you know the, the positive and you know the fascinating history? History of, of this connection
1: well one of the things that I always like to point out is unfortunately every time I present a seminar I always have to start out with fire mythology is a mythology there's been research and then after we move on there I can um you know start to get into some of the interesting things like um, ancestral fermented beverages things that existed prior to contact with with outsiders like you know all over Mexico South America There's different fermentations using agave, tapache, which is more modern, but was originally based in corn. From South America, there's cacao wines, and then we see these fermented beverages like in the Mori on the borders and in parts of the Southwest, East, you know, there's like berry fermentations, and there was like all these vast tradeways prior to um, these borders being in place. So it's been really interesting to like look into that history, I mean, the downside is A lot of this information, particularly like in Mexico, was ruined by like the Spanish when they burned libraries full of this. But, you know, there's still people making it and just finding these things, too, um, in the States. And there's been a movement with some people to like research these and bring them back so that it's not lost to history because of fear of being associated with these. Another thing I like to bring up is like there are so many food and drink contributions from for all intents and purposes, the new world that are now part of everything today, that it's good to celebrate that. Like three most important grains in the world are wheat, rice, and corn. And corn is everywhere now. And we use it for distillation. We use it for like beers. We use it ingredients. I'm a huge fan of Nixta and a lot of the other like corn-based whiskeys coming out of Mexico. So we have that. I mean, like quinine is an indigenous ingredient originally, tomatoes chili like if you like really start to unwrap the origins of things there's so many contributions that we've made that i've been really utilizing um native american history month to draw people's attention to that and remind them that you know we didn't just show you how not to starve we gave you all these foods and now the world should thank us for it because you know let's be honest um during the mesoamerican era like that was the most healthy diet in the world and I recently did a class on this, which is why it's like so in the forefront. But challenging people to reconsider what they consider civilized and, you know, acknowledge that while European and Eurocentric viewpoints are usually deemed the mainstream culture in which we measure everything against, that there are all these like really sophisticated agricultural systems and medicines and things being done here. It's just what we considered valuable was different like uh, one of my favorite things to use for this is um cacao beans like how they were money at a certain time you know and there were even fake ones made out of clay and then when the spanish came and they saw like all this gold they didn't understand that that was the money not the gold was so there are these like cultural clashes and i kind of like to use that as like a starting point to make people kind of see how things can exist in parallel and be equally as important and why there might be those issues that come up another thing that's been really good too is um there's some great indigenous wineries, breweries. There's more um distilleries opening. So every year instead of people asking me for what a good Thanksgiving cocktail should be, people want to know brands and they wanna support them or they'd like cocktails and, you know, they wanna do the research. And um I've had a lot of more people reach out as far as like forging goes and asking like ways to connect with their local communities, what ethics are behind it and things like that. So Rather than people Columbusing materials and there being shortages of like sacred plants, you know, we can work together, we can be sustainable, we can work locally, and then that can have a global impact if everybody starts doing it.
0: And, you know, you mentioned indigenous-owned brands, and and I wanted to ask you about that because I thought that was really fascinating. Because when we're talking about hospitality, we're talking bars and restaurants, yes, but we're also talking about brands. Uh, And you mentioned earlier how brands market themselves and some of the things that they tie into. But more importantly, we talk about who owns them and what they represent. What are some of the indigenous brands you recommend or, or that you talk about people should look into?
1: Well, um, there's a few really cool brands. Every year on my Instagram bio, I put together a list. Uh, I actually have to update it because I found out that the um, community, the Pomo community that um, my dad's mom is from, they have a winery in California that I can't wait to, ex- to explore. But I've worked with um, prior with um, Tara Gomez, who was behind Camden's Two Dreams in um, Kitta Wines. That uh, Her work is particularly interesting because the first winery that she put together was with her tribe, the Chumash, from um, Santa Ines. And, you know, like I always like to bring up the history of wine being that in California it was started by like indigenous slavery through the Spanish missionaries. So it's pretty cool that... A lot of these different communities are getting their land back with wineries on it and making wine and supporting the community. There's also Twisted Cedar. And for beers, of course, my favorite is uh, Bone Arrow Brewing. It's owned by two women and it's based in Albuquerque. I know um, Happy Accidents are huge fans. And uh, I was really lucky that Kate Gerwin was able to bring me a lot of uh, cans of it to try it for the first time when I was at Tails. There's Mad River Brewing, Skydance. there's Seven Clans Brewing, and then for Spirits, there's Copper Crow, which is are the first distillery that ever existed on Indigenous lands. There's Heritage Distilling at Talking Cedar, and then um, Sonoma Distilling, where my friend um, Rox, that was on my first panel, works. So, you know, there is a lot of, there are like a few brands, and they're growing, and um, you know, right now, like, especially during November, I like to encourage people, I'm like, you don't just have to do like a corn dish that you researched. You can support one of these wines to pair with this corn di- dish that you've researched. You know, if it grows together, it can go together. So that should extend to your Thanksgiving table or Thanksgiving, as we like to call it.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, that was my next question. It's November currently. It's Native American Heritage Month here in the United States. And shortly after this episode comes out, people are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving. What should we keep in mind as we head into this holiday to better understand and appreciate the immensity of the indigenous role uh, in our history and culture? Uh, You've touched upon a couple of things, but, you know, Thanksgiving is right in front of us. What should people keep in mind?
1: Well, I think the first thing is to realize that for a lot of nations, it's a day of mourning particularly the Wampanoag that um, were kind enough to help everybody out and had their land stolen recently and had to fight to get it back. Um, thanks, Trump. And Alcatraz, where the uh, occupation was, people gather. And as much of a day of mourning as it is a time to acknowledge ancestors and celebrate resiliency in the same way. And the whole mythology behind it is a lie. So like we could do with a harvest festival I think but we could take away like all the lies about how simple the Wampanoag were to help the pilgrims out and then how the pilgrims took their land when like if you spend the time to look up the origins of Thanksgiving it's a pretty bloody holiday and it's it's not really something that should be celebrated I think we can take away from the bad origins of it and turn it into something else but I also like to encourage people to not just do land acknowledgements because that's been a recent trend where you acknowledge the people in the land that you're occupying, but to go two steps beyond. You know, um, it shouldn't just be Native American Heritage Month one month out of the year or one day for our Native People's Day or Indigenous People's Day, it depend- depending on where you're from and what you call it. You should use this to inspire you to like be better towards your Indigenous communities around you 365 days a year. I also like to encourage people to look up traditional recipes, learn about the foods that are part of your Thanksgiving feast that are almost like cranberries, turkey, corn. You know, legend has it that popcorn was introduced at the first Thanksgiving. Another thing I like to also encourage people to do is not concentrate November on this whole Thanksgiving, but to actually, again, celebrate all the indigenous contributions and people. And if you wanna be a good ally, because a lot of times I get a lot of like weird messages and phone calls, like apologizing for people's ancestors. Like that's weird. Don't do that to your friends. Instead of doing that, like find a good cause, find a local cause with your local community and, you know, put the energy that you would towards that towards actually helping out like modern people. You know, when we um, keep deferring back to the um, mythology behind Thanksgiving, it really sticks us in the past and, You know, it doesn't bring to light like the fact that we're fighting to keep the um, Indigenous Child Welfare Act going, so our families aren't separated if our children are put into the system. You know, find a real modern cause, look at us as modern people, and support us in that. And
0: you know, looking ahead to twenty twenty three, we're about to start a new year soon. What can we expect to see from you? What what kinds of projects do you have coming up that we should you know put on our calendar?
1: I have a couple cool things coming up. I will be back in the States, hopefully for Tales, definitely for BCB, and I'll be doing some stuff with Tiki by the Sea. I'm currently working with a um, tequila brand that's based in the UK that's expanding to the U.S. market called Caskabel, and I've been doing some... Master classes for them on indigenous ingredients and kind of the concept of medicine behind a lot of it, which has been interesting. You know, they're going to be launching in the US, so I'll be helping with that in an advocacy role and doing some more classes and some more collaborations with um, other like indigenous Mexican bartenders and whatnot. And then the big thing that I have on my plate is I will, I've been calling it Project European Invasion because it tickles my fancy, but um, I'll be bringing three indigenous bartenders and some ingredients over and we'll be taking over a little red door in paris and the seed library in london and it'll be the first time in history that this has ever been done and i wanted to uh, partner with bars in europe that have similar philosophies behind a lot of the work that i'm doing and the people that i'm involving and that you know will also benefit from doing this collaborative project together i really have to like thank alex francis from little red door for like being really supportive and helping me get this developed. And um, again, if we do this in the in Europe, maybe a bar in America will think that it's important enough to include us in projects like this going forward or consider that something like this can be done rather than just being like, oh, well that bartender is like half indigenous, does that count? I think if we can showcase what we can do with our ingredients and our people, it can only make the industry better. and. Um, I've been working on a book for the last couple of years, but this year I'm hoping to finally finish it. I, um, it involves recipes from modern indigenous bartenders and a look back at like fermented beverages and sort of just kind of like an exploration of ingredients. And also I want to make sure that I include a lot of non-alcoholic options because we do have a history that's traumatic that we're navigating forward. And I think it's also important if people choose through historical reasons or cultural or personal reasons that we um, make more space for people that would not necessarily feel welcome in a hospitality environment to be welcome by creating these kinds of programs. And I'll say it again, Awamni is one of the most important bar programs in America, and that's the sous chef's restaurant, uh, Sean Sherman in um, Minneapolis. It's completely indigenous, seasonal, locally sourced, and non-alcoholic, and I think that should set the standard for what indigenous cocktails can look like in the United States. Well,
0: Chalky, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for sharing all of this with us, and we look forward to what you're getting up to in 2023.
1: Well, thank you so much for um, having me back, and I look forward to seeing you at all future events if we're in the same city.
0: You can find Chalky Tom on Instagram at Chalktales. We've got a link to that page and to her Linktree page in this episode's notes and on our website at imbibemagazine.com. We've got plenty more stories and recipes for you at that website, and be sure to subscribe to Radio Imbibe on your favorite podcast app to keep up with future episodes. We've got your social media needs covered on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter, and if you're not already a subscriber to the print and or digital issues of Imbibe, then let's change that. Just follow the link in this episode's notes, and we'll be happy to help you out. I'm Paul Clark. This is Radio Imbibe. Catch you next time.